people are different than we are. And that when you're trying to influence or persuade another person, what generally happens is we use the same strategy that we use to convince ourselves of something to convince other people, but it doesn't always work. Greetings everyone and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we're joined by an interesting thought leader, all in the name of helping you unleash your leadership potential with their insights, tools, and habits. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, CEO of Results, where we believe there's a hard path and an easier path to building your business. We partner with your leadership team to show you how to dramatically improve your results by perfecting the art of execution to get more of what you want from your business. We all know how difficult it can be to connect with people and get your message across. Today, we are discussing words that change minds and how to identify the four main patterns of motivation. Shelley Rose Charvet will share practical advice to help you predict and influence behavior to succeed. I want to thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University and they partner with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their online offerings include leadership, digital transformation, project management, artificial intelligence and ethics, digital wellness, and embracing allyship and inclusion. Their core belief is that learning should be fun, engaging, and easily accessible. Their online platform means your employees can literally learn from wherever they are located. PowerEd meets them in their space and at a time that works best for them. Check out PowerEd at powered.ca. And don't forget to help us grow the community by sharing the episode links with people in your network that love learning as much as you do. Check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. Now on with the episode. Now our special guest today is my friend Shelly Rose Charvet. Shelly is the founder of the Institute for Influence and Success Strategies Consulting and Training. She's a best-selling author and the international expert on influencing language, researching and teaching for over 35 years. Her first book, Words That Change Minds, is an international bestseller available in 15 languages and a Forbes Best Management book. Organizations in over 30 countries ask Shelley to help them increase their impact and influence. She started learning neuro-linguistic programming in 1982 in Paris after immigrating there as a communication trainer working in English and French in international organizations such as IBM and UNESCO, Shelley found using neuro-linguistic programming could unlock people's abilities to think and communicate better. As part of her training, she was introduced to Roger Bailey's language and behavioral profile, better known as the lab profile, and it set her on a decades-long journey of discovery and development of tools to help people get their message across. Shelly, it's my distinct pleasure to welcome you to Unleashed. Hello, Jeff. Nice to be here. Hello, everybody. Nice to be with you here. Uh, and where are you joining us from today? Well, I'm in Berlin today, um, and actually, I'll be here for the next few weeks. Uh, it's uh, now we're getting closer to the end of COVID. I can actually go see some of my clients, which I've nice. done over the last couple of weeks. It was great to see real human beings in person. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Shelly, I've got a bit of a head start in our audience today. We've uh, we've been working with you for quite a while, and uh, I think I, I became aware of you about a year and a half ago, and 
Uh, your topic uh, and uh, and your friendship, I think, has literally uh, uh, changed uh, my view of the world and, and how we conduct business and how we build relationships. So I'm excited for you to share all the things that you know with uh, with with our audience today. Now, before we start to dig into some of the language of influence, mm -hmm. I, I thought it would be fun to uh, to talk about your sort of secret passion and your secret love of stand-up <laughs> comedy. You talked about this thing, so the sex life of dragonflies. Oh what my is goodness. that all about? Uh, yes, uh, if anybody's interested in a little piece of stand-up comedy, as a professional speaker, trainer, consultant, uh, our Canadian Association of Professional Speakers had a comedy night one night, and I just had to do it, and this story was ripe for the telling. So if you have six minutes, you can watch Sex Life of Dragonflies. Just go on YouTube, and that's all you have to look for, and it is there. Uh, uh, it isn't explicit, just so you know. So Shelly, I, and, I, and I, I'm going to check that out for sure. Now, influencing people's behavior seems like a really interesting topic and, and perhaps a very, uh, a potentially a dangerous one too. I'm sure it's not the first time, but it, when I first came across your work and started sort of digging into your book and then having a chance to meet you and, and, and learn uh, a little bit more deeply about how to apply some of these tools, it kind of made me think about being a, a Jedi and, and uh, of course, how uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi can direct traffic by reading minds and influence people's behavior. Now, are you telling me that if we use your tools, we can be as powerful as a Jedi? Uh, yes, you can. And you can be a good Jedi or a bad Jedi. A tool is just a tool. A skill is just a skill. The intention that you uh, have behind why and how you use it is also very important. And I think that one of the things most people kind of get is that we kind of get that people are different than we are. And that when you're trying to influence or persuade another person, what generally happens is we use the same strategy that we use to convince ourselves of something to convince other people. But it doesn't always work. And the reason is they don't think like us, they don't get motivated like us. And we have an example if uh, you wanna share the slide of, so we can show people exactly what we mean. Sure. And if you're listening to the podcast version of this, you can see the visual at the YouTube channel. So, uh, so don't forget to go there. Yeah. So here's the example I wanted to give. Let's imagine everyone that's uh, listening or watching or watching later, you're on the internet and you're Googling because you need a pair of rain boots. And that's what you're looking for. You're actually buying a pair of rain boots. You wanna get one online. The question is, which of these ads do you click on? So Tyler, next please. Do you click on keep your feet dry, number one? Number two, avoid getting wet feet. Three, do you wanna keep your feet dry? Four, gotta keep your feet dry. Number five, ways to keep your feet dry. And number six, how to keep your feet dry. Now, everyone in the chat, you need a pair of rain boots. It's Bob's rain boots you're going to buy, but which ad would you click on? Everybody just stick the number that appeals to you the most. Keep your feet dry, avoid getting wet feet, etc. So in the chat, let's have a look at this. So big range so far, all some sixes. Yeah. Six and ones. Okay, very interesting. Notice that there's a broad range here. There's a uh, higher number for six and number one, but there's a pretty broad range of what yeah. people are clicking on. Yeah, hi, Tim, I see you there. Yeah. 
So what does this mean? Well, what it means is different language appeals to different people and they think differently about it. So Tyler, if you can click the next slide, let's explain what it is. These are, oh, wait a second there. Yeah, these are motivation triggers. And the first one is called toward. This is when someone is motivated towards a goal of some kind. They wanna get or have or be something. So in this case, the ad was, the goal of keeping your feet dry. And a lot of people pick that one. And the next one we call away from, avoid getting wet feet. Now, this is when you want to move away from a problem. You want to prevent it or fix it or solve it. And the people who are moving away from won't click on the towards ad and vice versa, because the language goes in the opposite direction of movement that they're going in. So that's one of the pairs we're looking at. It's called direction of movement. The next pair we're looking at is where does a person make a decision? You'll see the language here is if you want to keep your feet dry, where you ask the person what they want and they decide for themselves. And we call this motivation trigger internal. But of course, not everybody works that way. Some people are looking for outside information and guidance. We call this external. And if you have credibility, credibility with someone and you tell them they've got to do something, they believe you and they'll do it. So if the source is credible, you can tell people what to do. Got to keep your feet dry. Now, not so many people pick number four. You know, when you look through, we got a couple people, somebody with my name picked number four, but it's not you'll see. And then part of the reason is you have to be very careful with what we call command language. And this is where a lot of people make a mistake. They're too enthusiastic or too definitive, and it can turn some people off, particularly if they're internal. And the last pair of all the motivation triggers you want to look at are ways to keep your feet dry. This is for people who like alternatives, and we call this options. They want to have lots of choices. But then there's the people, and we have a lot of them here, who don't care about having lots of different kinds of rain boots. They just want to know how I can get my feet dry. I was very clearly uh, number three. So uh, want to keep your uh, want to keep your uh, your feet dry. What does that sort of then say about me? Um, so this is the context of rain boots. We don't know what it really says about you because one of the things about these motivation triggers is it's not about your personality. It's about what motivates you in a given situation. So in your work, for example, Jeff, you may be very internal, which means you do not want to be told what to do. So if somebody says do this or do that, do you have an example when that has happened recently? Well, anytime someone is trying to take ownership of my, literally of my time. So if I get a meeting invite from somebody and they haven't first checked to see if I'm available, or if some, even if somebody suggests uh, that I should read this book, I'm probably less likely to want to do it. Or if there's something I should learn, uh, as much as I value people, I think I value people's contributions and input. If I haven't, uh, if I haven't uncovered the book or the tool or the technique myself, I, um, or, or haven't explicitly said that I'm available for a meeting, it really annoys and bothers me when people uh, try to consume uh, my time or make assumptions about what I should or shouldn't be learning. Yeah, and, and that's very typical when we're in internal mode. And uh, teams make this mistake all the time. Someone will be in a team meeting, say, this issue is happening. And then uh, somebody who's got a great idea will say exactly the wrong words to get their idea across. They'll say, oh, I know what we should do. 
Well, the word should is command language. And unless you have absolutely impeccable credibility with everyone around the table, should is a no, is, is a no, don't you tell me what to think or what to do. And the idea can get dismissed, but not because it's a bad idea. And my suggestion, listen to my language, and I'm going to give you more techniques as we go along. My suggestion would be to say, um, I have an idea about that. Can I run it by you and see what you think? It's, it's much better when you have people who are in internal mode to offer them information and invite them to decide. So Jeff, if I sent you an invitation and say, would you be available to discuss XYZ topic with me? What, what would be your reaction? Very positive. Yeah, very, very positive. And, and I think it, if, if there's language in the meeting invite that, that would be similar to what you said, that would even help right there as opposed to just getting a meeting request with no context other than I, I need your time from three until four on Wednesday. Yeah, well, you can't have it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the other thing that you, that the slides were reminding me of was, was children, you know, try to, and rain, rain boots in particular, try to tell a kid to put on, a, on, a, on their mittens or a toque or, or put on a pair of rain boots. And we know what we're gonna get. They're gonna do the exact opposite. Do well, we grow right. out of those? Like, do we grow out of those patterns? Because it feels to me like all kids are wired that way. Well, as soon as they go into the terrible twos, that's the first phase of high internal. And the first thing, of course, they learn to say is no. And, you know, when I'm in the grocery store and somebody else's kid is having a fit, I go by, I'm so happy. I'm so happy because it's not me. Right. And now two things are happening. This child is decided, wanting to decide for themselves, but the parents go external and they're sure that people are not happy with how they're handling their toddler having a, having a, a fit in the grocery store. So that's the first phase. And of course, parents get the idea. The toddler wants to make decisions. And that's the essential nature of the internal mode. I want to make my own decisions. Don't tell me what to do. So you can offer a toddler choices. And of course, that'll work until it doesn't work. Would you like your story before or after your bath? That gives them an opportunity to make a decision. And then, of course, the second big phase of internal between parents and children is teenagerhood. And this is more complicated because teenagers become very internal. Don't you tell me what to do? And yeah, you want the, my room cleaned? I don't think so. And at the same time, they're incredibly sensitive or external to what their friends say. And this is why social media has been deemed so harmful for teenagers, because if anybody gangs up on someone, they just feel awful because they're in very external mode. It's they care about what other people think and other people have the power then to, to hurt them. So that's also a challenge for parents uh, today. But it's the same thing between customers and companies that provide services. Some customers need to be guided and told what, what they need to do, and others want to be asked. And, and you need to know the difference. Who needs what as you're talking to prospective and actual customers? Well, and I tip my hand, right? So I think uh, you, know, you, know, you and I know each other we've actually done some of this work together. So I, I've told you basically, I can be an internal for a lot of things. If you don't know somebody this way and, and someone wouldn't even know how to describe themselves. So how do we start to tell what tendency a person might have? So there's a very easy way to do this. Um, imagine everyone is internal to you. So imagine I need to establish credibility with you and I need to offer and invite and suggest and not tell. You know, there's a, a joke in Canada uh, 
uh, Royal Bank of Canada, their slogan, everybody remembers the slogan, we became the biggest bank in Canada, one customer at a time. And then uh, Rick Mercer did a whole riff on that. And he said, we became the biggest bank in Canada, one service charge at a time. You know, don't tell me we're the biggest <laughs> bank in Canada. You know, so even in advertising, people don't want to be told what to think or what to do. But if you offer a, a suggestion and invite people to decide, imagine everyone's external and you give them a suggestion and invite them to decide, what do you think about that? Does that sound like it would fit for you? And if the person turns to you and goes, I'm not sure, what do you think? Then you know they're external to you and they actually want guidance from you. But if they go, oh yeah, let me think about it, they're internal and they'll think about it. So the fail safe is imagine everyone needs the language of suggestion and invitation and not command language or too much enthusiasm, et cetera. And then the person will show you. Yeah. And so a person has to be very deliberate then about practicing this thing. So how, how do you suggest that a person, like what, what, what are the first few steps that someone that wants to start getting good at using the language of influence, what should they do? Well, and this is, it, it, there's a learning curve. You, I've just given you hints about how to observe internal and external and what to look for, and then how to change how you speak. There's also a, a number of questions you can ask. So let's imagine I'm talking to a prospective customer, and I, I want to know if they're internal or external with regards to me as a person, um, and we're talking about their needs, um, I can find out what's important to them by saying, well, what do you want to achieve here? Um, uh, what's important to you? And then they'll give me uh, some idea of that. And then the next question to find out internal and external is, well, how would you know that we've done a good job for you? How would you know that we've done a good job for you? Now, someone who's internal will say, well, you know, we'll see it. I'll know when it's done right. And they may even tell you how. But someone who's more external will talk about external evidence. So they'll say, for example, well, we'll have good feedback from our customers. Um, uh, my team will be happy and they'll tell me. So the, the evidence comes from the outside for external and they decide, and they may even point to themselves, they decide if it's internal and that can give you an indication. So that's what I talk about in the book is the procedure is you ask a question, listen to the answer, and then you have uh, the language uh, that you need to use. Shelly, does it change during the sales process? Because it occurs to me that to get somebody to pay attention to your company and in the first place might take a different language and a different motivation than when they're getting close to making a purchasing decision. Yes, and um, that's absolutely true, particularly if there's a lot of steps to go through to make a decision. If it's, uh, I need it, don't need it quick decision, that may not be the case. But when somebody's actually going through a process, they may start uh, the process. Remember, we just talked about away from and toward. They may start looking for a solution because they suddenly realize there's a problem. So they're very away from, they go, oh no, we can't put up with this any longer. I gotta find a solution. And they're looking around and uh, they're moving away from the problem. Uh, or someone may find, uh, may decide they want something at the beginning, like at the beginning of, of looking for something because they have a goal. And I have an example of this in the con uh, small business in the construction area. Uh, one of my neighbors who have coffee with when I'm home at Tim Hortons in the morning, there's a bunch of us that get together. Now we can get together again, fortunately. And um, he is an engineer and he designs and then uh, subcontracts to builders uh, sunrooms. 
And I asked him one day, because he told me he got his business by uh, Google ads. And I said, well, can you show me your Google ads? I'm curious to see what language you use. And all of his language was toward in his Google ads. Do you want more light in your, in your home? Do you want more space? Do you want more this, more that? It's all about what you can get and have. And I said to him, do you know, I don't know if this is true for your prospective customers, your ideal customers, but maybe some of them don't want more light. Maybe some of them are fed up with the dark. Now, that may sound like we're saying the same thing, but we're not really, because some people are only motivated when there's a problem and they can't stand it anymore. Like I only clean up my desk when I can't see anything and I can't find anything. I don't clean it up in order to be tidy. I clean it up in order to get rid of the mess. So we did an experiment and I wrote some of the ads for him and we did an experiment and placed all the ads at the same time. So people had equal opportunity to click on both ads. And I was did, you know, fed up with the dark or you don't have enough space in your house. And they played both sets of ads. And what was interesting, and this is not the case for everybody, you kind of have to do the research. What was interesting is that the clicks were almost half and half, which means up until that point, he was probably missing close to 50% of interested prospects who at least wanted to go to the next step and find out more. That is powerful. So beta testing would be one strategy to try to figure out if you are missing part of the market. Because I, I think the default quite often, Shelly, is if we want to figure out why our customers buy from us, we go and ask our customers. But that only tells us part of the, uh, part of the picture. So, um, uh, so I can see how just surveying your customers wouldn't be the most, the, most, the most effective strategy necessarily. Are there some other ways to find out if you might be missing, on, missing out on a, a segment of the population because your messaging is not connecting with everyone? Well, if you do have some kind of outbound campaign or uh, social media campaign, you can test these kinds of language. The first thing is you need, to use, you need to learn it. What's the difference between toward language and away and language for internals or externals and some of the other motivation triggers. But because you can do testing on the internet, it, it means it's incredibly powerful and quick. You just have to make sure you are differentiating in the language. Like, uh, for example, um, who are your best customers? The people that are highly internal and they won't take recommendations. They just want what they want. Well, maybe you'd like your customers to be a bit more external to you. Well, you can call them or you, maybe you can figure out, is that correct or is that not correct with them? And there's a number of different patterns that we can uh, that you can try out and see which works the best. Shelly, do you have some tips for testing that you've even got the language right. So I, like, I, I could totally see, because uh, I, I do this myself, actually. Um, I will, I'll put some information out on social media, for example, and I think that I've got one post that's, that's away from and one that's towards, but I'm not always confident I've got the language right to properly test if, I've, if I'm doing it correctly. So are there some tips that you might have to ensure that you're, you're on the right path when it comes to using the right language? Yes. So Away from language is all about what you don't want. Uh, you don't want to have a long sales cycle or are you tired of doing the same thing over and over again when you know it could be automated? So things that's things you want to get away from and toward is what they want to have. So let's say you're selling automation. I'm just making this up. Automation can make your life easier and all your processes run smoother and enable you to scale. So you talk about the benefits or the problems you want to get away from and solve. Does that help? Yeah, that helps a lot. And, and I think there's probably some experimentation that is required in 
that messaging as well. Because but, you need to get the right thing. Like you need to be talking yeah, about the thing that matters to them. Yeah. That's right. Which is another reason to, to stay really close to your customers and really own the voice of the customers that you, you currently have, because you should be a lot more aware of what the problems they had when they started working with you and, and how well you've solved them. So, um, so that's important there. Now, there's another piece to this that I find really curious too. And it's that we don't stay the same for all things. So a person may be internal for one activity and they may be external for another. They may be toward and away depending on what the activity is. Can you talk about that dynamic a little bit and then yeah, maybe you know maybe some of the there dynamics are person there. yeah there are personality tests that say you are this and you are that and in my experience most people who do these personality tests go oh yeah okay but I don't always do that do I and I prefer to think about how we motivate ourselves and how we think and and what's going to get us to act is very contextual like so let's just take toward and away from you know um uh uh, why did you take your last vacation? Was it because you wanted to get away and get a break? Well, that's an away from vacation. Or what? Or did you want to go to the beach and do scuba diving? That's a toward vacation. And if you're in a family, it might be a good idea, just a suggestion, because I wouldn't tell you what to do, to discuss what the purpose of the vacation is. Is it a getaway or is it a go-to? So that would be one example. Um, another example, uh, if everybody winds the clock back to when you were a student or when you were learning your trade, uh, you know, there's two kinds of students. There's one kind of student that has to get uh, something ready, has to hand in an assignment for January 21st. And on January 11th, they've done a plan. January 15th, they've done all the research. January 18th, they've uh, done a first draft and they hand it in. And not very many people have the goal in mind or to worry about it. Most of them wait to the last minute and the threat of missing the deadline and they just stay up all night for two nights and do the, do the assignment. Now, most people, when they were students, were that away from motivated by a threat uh, yeah, <laughs> kind of student. So as well, parents... Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I'm picturing now, I'm picturing these cold Canadian winters and why all the travel companies are predominantly, I think, in their advertisements saying escape the cold winter. So that's very intentional. And uh, oh, I think the it is absolutely. And uh, I think sometimes they make a mistake. They talk about going to the sun. I think they would get a better click rate in a country like Canada. They said, do you want to avoid the cold this winter? Yeah, well, that's for sure. You don't have well, to stay here. <laughs> see, and that's interesting because if you were to if you were to ask me which advertisement is more prevalent, I would say that most companies are advertising escape the winter. But your take on it is a little bit different. So does that mean that we actually we we probably only pay attention to the messages that gravitate with us? So there's a bit of confirmation bias probably too in a way in the way that we view the world, depending on which motivational tendencies we uh, we have. Well, there is until now, and now all of you are going to be aware of, oh, is Air Canada sending uh, a go to the sun or escape the winter kind of things? I think we're all going to be aware of, and, and when you look at posters and when you watch commercials, are they showing you how to get rid of a problem or are they showing you how to get some kind of benefit or advantage? Now, in your companies, and this has been, um, this may or may not be true for any particular industry, but it's something to think about. In the sales function, one of the reasons why people learn to find out what the issues for the clients are is something that's urgent and has to be fixed now 
gets a much quicker decision than a goal that's merely important. So, I mean, think about it. When we open our emails, we answer the emergencies first. We don't do the things that are going to move us ahead first. And it's a, it's a natural tendency. And it may or not, may not be true for each uh, profession, each industry. So it'd be interesting to figure out what makes your customers buy in the end. Is, are they trying to fix a problem or are they trying to gain, get, or have an investment that gives a return? That's more of a toward kind of thing. Right. So if somebody doesn't realize they have a problem or it's not a very urgent one, what are some ways that you can start to get their attention then? Right. And well, so one of the things you can do is ask a pair of questions. So, uh, so uh, what is it you want? Uh, what's important to you? And then the question that finds out whether someone is moving toward or away from is, why is that important to you now? And if you say, well, we, we're, we're trying to grow and we need to have these systems in place, that's a toward answer. Or they may say, uh, we're trying to grow. And if we don't get these systems in place now, uh, we'll be completely swamped. And then you can say, so you want to make sure you don't get swamped as you grow. So you go to their bus stop and talk in a way from language. So the question is, what do you want or what's important to you? And why is that important to you now? And they'll tell you whether they're moving toward or trying to get rid of a problem. And that just feels like massive opportunity to grow your business, Shelly, because, and I'm going to make a bit of a general statement right now that in a lot of companies, we're closing the business where the customers have an urgent problem. It's painful. They know it's there. But if you could get better at attracting people that don't necessarily know they have a problem yet and creating authentic urgency, but a long ways in advance of when they might normally feel it. Uh, I just think about all the untapped potential that can be out there to grow your business. Well, and absolutely. And you can go even go a little bit further and say, well, if you don't have these systems in place, um, uh, what's the danger in that? What's the risk in that? And, and people will tell you that. And then you can say, well, uh, how big a risk is it? Right? Is it something that doesn't matter? Or is this something that is going to be really problematic if you don't prevent this problem from happening? And you can hear, I'm using all this away from language to see if there is a problem they want to make, move away from. Yeah. Uh, and, and we do this in our own lives. We have goals to do something, but we don't follow through because they're not urgent. They're not screaming at us this morning. And then we feel bad because we're not moving towards our goals. Well, sometimes the thing that's going to make us jump into action is a problem. Can I do a personal example? Absolutely. Okay. Shelly wakes up one morning, gets stressed, looks in the mirror and goes, oh my God, my jeans have shrunk. Well, that's an emergency. Can't get in my clothes. So that's why every January people are joining the gym. It's because they can't get into their jeans, which have shrunk. And so <laughs> away from is a good thing to get you started, but it's not great to keep you motivated. So if you have a long-term personal development goal or a long-term project, maybe the away from gets you motivated to start, but then you also need to have some toward. So, you know, when you lose a couple pounds, you're not that motivated anymore, right? So have a toward goal that you really want to reach. And the research shows, and this is very interesting, and this was done by a friend of mine who worked for Nicoderm, you know, the patch people. Yeah. Uh, they found out the difference between people who try to quit smoking and people who succeed. Well, the triers, they talk to themselves in away from language. I shouldn't smoke. I should give this up. It's not good for me. Whereas the people who actually succeed at smoking do it a little differently in their head. For one thing, they have an image in their head of what they don't want, which would be, you know, black lungs, unhealthy. When they look at that, 
and that pushes them away. And, but they also have an image of what they want to go toward, which is themselves looking happy and healthy and doing all the things they want to do and, and seeing their children get married and their grandchildren, et cetera. So they get push motivation and pull motivation. And the big difference seems to be having both motivations. This is a way for anybody to be more effective, like have right. a good reason to start and a good reason to keep going. And it's also a, um, a great way to listen to your clients and what they need. If they're constantly moving away from, they need a goal as well, because you can't just keep moving away from, right? You got to end up moving towards something, right? And, yeah, well, that's the relationship that we have uh, with our doctor, right? So we, we really only go to the doctor if, uh, if, we're, if we're not feeling well. And so that's a different motivator as opposed to when we're, uh, when we're healthy. Same, same thing for you, right? Like fitness routines. And I, and I think of that actually personally, because the reason that I keep going to the gym, even though most of the time I would prefer not to, is I think about when I'm 85 years old and the kind of life I want to be living if I'm fortunate to, to, to live to that age. So that so is the reason I go to the gym. toward language there, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I can, I can, see, uh, I can see how that plays, uh, that, that plays a big role in, in sticking with something. Yeah. So that's can you imagine going to your doctor and your doctor says, what are your goals for your health? <laughs> that hardly ever happens they go okay tell me what's wrong right and i mean if you can get to see a doctor these days yeah, yeah. so but should they be asking that question that would be a very interesting thing to find out what people's goals for their health would it would probably mean the conversation would be very different shelly the other thing that most leaders are dealing with on a constant basis is giving and receiving feedback what are the implications for using your models for feedback? Yeah. Um, th that's such an important function. And so many people are uncomfortable with that. And in, in fact, um, as leaders, we really need to be doing a lot of this, but we hate doing it because we've learned techniques that make people feel bad. I mean, most people have been trained to use the feedback sandwich and you know what that is. It's say something nice, then stick in the criticism or the thing they need to improve and then say something nice. And here's what happens. We've all been programmed now as a result of this to duck compliments because as soon as someone says something nice to you, especially your boss, you go, okay, 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 tell me what I did wrong. And we don't hear the compliment. And my, I have a couple of suggestions. One is if you have a compliment and you wanna give positive feedback, you phone them up, leave them a message when they're not going to be there, tell them what they did right and the positive consequence and hang up, say goodbye. If you stay on the phone or talk to them, they're going to dismiss what you just said and wait for the criticism because they've been trained in the feedback sandwich. If you have a suggestion for someone to make, my suggestion is to use what I call the suggestion model. And that's when you think, okay, I have something that I want them to do differently. So there's four steps in the suggestion model. Can I just go over them? Absolutely. And, and um, maybe Nicole, can you type them in the chat so everybody can see them? So step number one, make a suggestion in the language of suggestion. I have a suggestion for you that I'd like to run by you. Okay, so if you put uh, number one, make a suggestion. Number two, say what the suggestion would prevent, avoid, or solve. So number two, what would the, that's away from language. Number two, what would the suggestion prevent, avoid, or solve? Number three, what is the benefit? What would be achieved 
by the suggestion. And step number four, and everybody just cut and paste this if you, if you wanna keep it. Number four is why it's easy. So let me do a demo for you. So number three is the benefit of what will be achieved. And number four is why it's easy. So I suggest that you may wish to consider using this suggestion model when you wanna get somebody to improve something because this way it lowers their resistance and it doesn't make them feel bad. And it's easier for them to hear and think about how to put it into practice. And it's a very simple four step model. Yeah, that is really helpful. And, uh, and it, you know, the other thing I like about the model, Shelly, is it forces a person to put a little bit more thought into the conversation. So when you've got feedback for somebody, you don't rush into it. You don't do it when you might be emotionally charged. Uh, and the other piece is giving you confidence to actually have that conversation with a better probability of a positive outcome. Because it's one of the Absolutely. reasons that we, we avoid giving people feedback like the plague is we, we imagine the worst possible outcome and it doesn't usually take place. So your model should give people confidence that they're doing it right. right. And, the and you only is need be good. a couple of things. You only need to figure out what do you want them to do differently? Um, uh, Tim, you said, she asked the person, can I make a suggestion first? Because that's great. Or you say, I have a suggestion for you. Do you want to hear it? Um, you want to make them curious. Uh, and if you want to talk to them, we know that nobody ever answers their phone anymore. I don't know why we still call them phones. I think the last thing we do with those things in our hand is phone people. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. Get them to call you. Say, yeah, I was thinking about something that could be of help to you. Give me a call. Well, who's not going to call, right? Yeah. And then you can use the suggestion model. Now, what if you have something bad to say to somebody that they're screwing something up and you want them to stop? So it's not about making a suggestion. It's making a critique. Well, one, never do it in combination with a compliment because that doesn't get the message across. It just makes them feel bad, right? And I have a formula called the bad news formula. And again, Nicole, if you can uh, just write this title and I'll give you the steps, uh, bad news formula. And uh, again, why am I calling it the bad news formula? Well, this is useful anytime you want to tell somebody something that they probably don't want to hear. So you start with the bad news. So step number one is bad news, okay? Then you say the word, but. So step number one is start with the bad news, then but, and then step number two, use, and then but, that's right. Step number three, you good news and, good news and good news. So you've got three pieces of good news. So step number three is good news and, good news and, good news. So bad news, but, three pieces of good news. Now, of course, the first objection is, what if you have no good news? Well, of course, you know what I'm gonna say, you have to find some good news. And the idea is here that you tell them right up front what's not going well, but you use that word, but. And but makes whatever comes next bigger in their mind's eye. So it kind of balances. And the research shows if somebody gets a piece of bad news, but then as the equivalent in, good news and three pieces of good news, it kind of balances out. Now, some people worry, well, aren't you just drowning the piece of information you want to get them with all this fluff later? Well, I suggest you try it out. And I want to tell about when somebody used it on me, <laughs> I was hired by a software company that was uh, originally started in New Zealand, 
and their new headquarters was California. And they had me go around the world to help them manage customer expectations because this company kept, they were a fleet management software company. They kept buying companies. And then as they were trying to merge them, their ability to meet some of their customers' demands was very wobbly for quite a while. And one of the things I taught them was the bad news formula. And uh, I went around, did all the places. We actually had a vacation in New Zealand because I think we should mix business and pleasure. And uh, so and we came back and three months later, they had not paid my bill. So I sent a little message to George and Payables. I said, hey, George, I haven't received my check yet. And George wrote me back and he said, dear Shelly, I know you haven't been paid yet, but I'm seeing the VP of finance this week and I'm going to put your bill in front of them. And I can let you know as soon as I've done that. So you'll know when you get paid. So I'm alone in my office and I go, oh, okay. Wait a minute. So I wrote him, I taught you how to do that. That's right. <laughs> and he sent That's me a back great... a smiley. So, yeah. I mean, I'm the queen of this stuff and it works, right? Yeah, and I'm gonna tip, I'm gonna tip my, uh, my hand here a little bit, but I use this formula constantly, constantly. And uh, some, of the, some of the ways that it shows up in business a lot is if somebody asks for a price increase, for example, or somebody asks uh, for you to deliver something that would be counterproductive. Uh, and the thing I like about the formula is the good news does not necessarily mean good outcome. It just means a positive step in the right direction. That example you just used uh, is a good illustration of that. And I, Shelly, I don't know if you picked up on it or not, but I tried to use this formula with you yesterday when we were going back and forth about whether or not we could show your slides in a live show. So did that come oh, across? Oh, you were or, good because or I did I butcher notice. it? No, I, I did okay, yeah. <laughs> good for you, Jeff. If you were very <laughs> subtle because I didn't even notice, yeah. So but in it. sales, think about this. You know, yeah. the customer asks for something that you can't give. You know, we call this scope creep in, uh, in some fields where they, you know, you agreed on this and now they want this, but they're not talking about paying you more. You can say, I can't do this for the same amount that we'd agreed to do the first thing. But what I can do is this and I can do that and I can do that. What do you think? And again, at the end, ask what they think. And uh, that can be an extremely powerful thing. And I use the bad news formula several times a day. Yeah. Yeah. What about selling to difficult people? Because I think anybody that is in, in, in a sales profession or, or has to influence people to make a buying decision, you get to a point where you just know you could help somebody, but for one reason or another, you just can't connect with that person or they're just really stubborn or difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so question number one is, do you really want to work with this person? Fair question. Fair question. But let's imagine you do. And um, you can kind of guess what patterns they're running. They're probably in a very internal mode and very away from. So they notice all the things they don't like about what your offer is. Now, I had a client like this in, as a consultant, uh, as a consultant who uh, kept saying he wants to go ahead and have me do this research for them and have me do this consulting piece, but he never seemed to get over the threshold. And I realized that he was internal and away from, and he needed me to speak in that language. So I said to him, you know, uh, I, I hear what you're saying that you, you'd like to go ahead, but there's, uh, there doesn't seem to be a good time. And then I really used some away from language. I said, it would be a shame if you wanted this done and it wasn't still done, you know, like a year from now, simply because there was never what seemed to be the right time. And that's all I said. 
as an internal, he thought about it. I only offered it as, as a grist for his mill. And he said, you know what? It would be a shame. That would be terrible if we were just in the same place as we are now when we could have done this. And he, he went ahead. Now, I'm not suggesting this is a miracle cure, but if we begin to offer people what they need in the, in the language they need it, it makes it easier for them to make a decision. Oh, it makes it easier. Or it's not so hard for them to make a decision. Yeah. Right? What about now, email? I have a tool that people might be interested in. Okay. It's available um, for email and it's available in Windows. And um, uh, I can, if you go to uh, libretta.com, this tool identifies those six patterns towards and away from internal and external options and procedures in email and coaches you on how to reply. And it even gives you feedback on your reply. So let me just type that in and you can, it's a subscription. I think it's $9 a month or something like this. Libretta is the name of the tool and it's got two US patents on it and it automatically uh, shows you how to decode these patterns in email. Yeah, and then it'll make it uh, it'll make it automatic after a while too, which is great. Now, you, the suggestion model I think is really helpful, Shelley. But it occurs to me that you would use that in probably less intense scenarios, if there are more heated conflicts that might even in the workplace. Let's use that as an example. Does mm -hmm. the suggestion model still apply, or or is there stronger language or some different techniques that you would advise people use? Well, for, uh, I think uh, the first suggestion, if it's a very emotional situation or where there's anger involved, is that not a lot gets solved when people are angry. And I think we all know that in our hearts and we know that in our guts. And so you first need to calm down. The second step would be to figure out what is important to you. What do you want? Because when you're angry, you're just angry. But somewhere behind that anger, if you listen to it, and, and, and ask yourself these questions, like what is important to me here? You'll begin to get some clarity. And when you figure out what's important, it helps you make decisions about what you want to do. And so I think there's the piece of internal work when there's a lot of emotion involved or a lot of frustration. And that's, okay, let me go away. Let me calm down a bit and let me connect with myself and figure out like, what is this frustration or this anger telling me about what I really want, need, want to avoid, or what's important? What lessons do I need to learn here? And I think the internal piece helps guide what you're gonna actually say to a person. Yeah, I agree. There's, there's bigger, con, um, I think, consequences to the language that we're using as, as well, Shelley, and these are just huge blind spots that you're uncovering for us today. There's a really interesting example in your book that you talk about, and it's, it's the statistic that, at least at the time of publishing, 38% of startups are led by female entrepreneurs, but they only receive 2% of the venture capital. And yeah, you make a, the assertion yeah. it's because of language. Can you elaborate? Yes, this is a study done at Harvard University. It's very, very interesting. And they paid attention to uh, the kind of questions that investors were asking founders of companies. And the, the questions they tended to ask men were, how do, you, uh, how do you plan on meeting your goals? How do you plan at winning in this space? The questions they tended to ask women were more about how do you avoid failure? And now with our toward and away from ears, with our, our button on that we can hear, 
we can hear that the, they were asking men more about how you plan to win and they were focusing on failure and avoiding failure with the women. Well, it's not very inspiring to invest money in a person who's just told you how they'll avoid failure. And so what I would recommend is that if somebody asks you, uh, how are you going to avoid failure? If you're doing a pitch for money, is, is that answer that question. Well, we've got plan A, B, C in, 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 pla in place to make sure that doesn't happen. And then switch to toward. Our goal is to do X. And here is how our plan, this is our plan on how we're going to get here. And that means the company is likely to get these kind of returns and do this kind of thing. You need to be able to be aware of it and turn it around. If the person is uh, uh, and, and that can really help uh, women get more investment because, and of course, it doesn't solve the problem of unconscious bias and conscious bias, which means I'm not giving my money to you because you a gal. Uh, yeah. That's not going to solve that problem. Yeah. But at least it'll make uh, at, at least somewhat of an impact. And, and um, most progress, I think, is, is, is good progress in the long haul anyways. This must be a fascinating time for you to be observing the world, Shelley. And you have a really unique perspective because you literally have been traveling the, the globe during the pandemic, uh, uh, living overseas, being in Canada a little bit. and Going into quarantine. Well, for sure, for sure. So you must be and have a lot of opinions about what governments and health officials are doing right and what they're doing wrong. And I I wonder if you've got some, maybe some broad observations that you, you want to share with, with what officials are doing right and wrong. Yeah, thank you for that opportunity, Jeff. You know, we've got a lot of polarization in Canada as well as uh, in other countries where people are very attached to their point of view and then they also want to persuade other people of their point of view. Uh, the government wants to get people vaccinated and wants them to, to be careful and take precautions in the area of COVID. But the big mistake they're making is that uh, information changes people's minds. Well, if information changed people's minds, we'd all be doing something different. You know, so uh, when uh, people hear very definitive statements or command statements, a lot of people uh, just go, well, don't tell me what to do. It kind of makes them a bit more internal and they don't want to be told what to do, which is interesting since all of our lives, government tells us what to do. Stop at the red traffic light, get your vaccinations before you go to school, you know, blow your nose when you have a cold. I mean, it's, it's like we're always being told what to do, but suddenly, and that's because of a number of political things that have happened, we're going, no, um, a number of people don't trust big pharma, so they're very hesitant to take this vaccine. And information doesn't help. But what does help if you get people to talk about what's important to them? So uh, vaxxers trying to persuade anti-vaxxers find it very frustrating. And the anti-vaxxers think that we're a bunch of naive people that just don't get all the conspiracies that are, you know, they're just trying to control us here and, and all those sorts of things. But when you back up, you can see the whole debate about vaccine and not vaccine is between people who are worried away from or care about towards their health and other people's health. And I think if you go to persuade somebody, chances are you're just gonna do something that's gonna make them more resolved to hang on to their opinion. But if you go and ask them, you know, if you're willing to have that conversation, well, what's important to you about your health in the area in the, uh, era of COVID, you'll find out their values, you'll find out their criteria. And then you can 
play that back to them. So you want to make sure that you're protecting your family and you're not being put upon by government and that you're not having things imposed on you that may be bad for you. Well, put that in one hand and, and make sure, and is there anything else? In the other hand, you can say, well, what's important to me is that I protect my grandparents and that I make sure that we're doing whatever we can so that the, the amount and number of people who get this disease is lower. And you'll see there's a different set of values, but together we're both concerned about health, right? Wow. And if I stop trying to be persuading people that I'm right, I can actually have a much better conversation. Mm -hmm. Have you seen regional differences? So are people in Canada motivated by different things than perhaps you know, people, uh, people in various countries in Europe? Yes, um, I did my first two in-person engagements over the last few weeks and oh, it was so wonderful to see people. Um, my, I did a three-day workshop in Stockholm and at the beginning of COVID, uh, you know, people were very critical of what uh, Sweden was doing because they weren't imposing rules. But Swedish culture, is like a very sensible kind of culture. People, in, in some ways, like Canadians are, have a reputation of they do what they're told, but they do it in a very kind of quiet, okay, that makes sense, you know. Um, and, the, and the government never imposed rules because it's just not how they function there. There, yeah. was, there was no, you must, you cannot. So they would have recommendations. I also work in Japan. I've been working uh, from Hamilton in September in Japan, which was a 13 hour time difference. And I don't, I don't wanna do that again. Uh, <laughs> I have part two of this course and I'm actually gonna go to Thailand to do it. So I'm gonna get some warm weather and a beach uh, to work in Japan because we still can't go there. In Japan, uh, they also, um, uh, didn't set any firm guidelines. And I think now they're really kind of regretting it because there's been surges and uh, they're trying to get a handle on that. Uh, it's hard to tell people what to do in France. You know, I went to Paris last week and did a seminar there. And I said, are you testing people? Like in Stockholm, uh, they've gotten rid of all the measures, but at the beginning of the seminar, everybody had to say if they were uh, if they were vaxxed. If they weren't, they had to have a test on the first day. Well, in Paris, you'd never get away with that. So uh, people, uh, they don't uh, ask that. We just had to follow the uh, COVID um, measures with masking and, and social distancing in the classroom. And uh, then people, but you couldn't actually ask anybody their status. Whereas if you go to a restaurant in Paris, very much like in Canada now, and depending on what province you're in, um, you have to sh show proof of vaccination. So in a restaurant in Paris, you have to show that, but you know, there's a lot of people resisting it. So, it, so it's very different in different, in different yeah, places. Yeah, it's been fascinating to watch. I, you know, and I think, I think it was Denmark. I saw a study out of Denmark a couple of weeks ago, and it just painted such a different picture where that country and the government, there's a lot of trust in government in some of those countries like Denmark. That's right. And That's right. The impact that trust in government has. And it's a bit unfortunate that so often government just gets in their own way. So distrust, um, distrust of government is high as it is, but there's just been so many missteps and mistakes that I don't yeah. think uh, that I don't, I don't think had to occur. Like we, we have enough information that, that we could, we could speak in language that, uh, that it encourages people to behave in such a way that we're more in this together than looking out for our for our own uh, for our own selves. That's right. And I think we need to talk to our political parties as well. I mean, uh, I think it's more important for the country to come together when there's an emergency like this and playing political games and and yeah. 
uh, I, some people may not agree with me, but some things we really do need to take care of. Uh, in Germany, the cases are going way up right now. Um, they're in the point of negotiating. They just had an election uh, right near when we had the last Canadian election, and yeah. they're in the process of negotiating a coalition government, and they hopefully their negotiations don't take as long as last time last time it took six months before our government was put together so somebody's got to put the interests of the whole country ahead of their own political ambitions right yeah for sure and the longevity has implications for sure you know short-term emergencies everybody's helping each other but uh, the longer it goes on the the, the more divergent uh, behavior and motivation gets for sure so Shelly thanks for sharing that this is a, a great moment now I think for us to transition to the three and 30 and you've given us so much information to think about and start to put into practice and experiment with I thank you for that and you've also got three steps that you want to encourage the audience to take in the next uh, the next 30 days to improve on words of influence so what are those three things So we have a slide up. So if you take a print screen, you'll be able to keep it um, or take a picture of it. So the first thing uh, in the next 30 days is look in your email. Are people talking about what they want or what they want to achieve and what their goal is? Or are they talking about what they don't want? And then you can answer in the same language. Also, are they saying, I want, I need, and they're deciding for themselves? Or are they saying, can you help me? I need some advice on this. Like, do they want your input? So are they in their email, internal or external? So that's number one. Uh, number two, um, I guess I did number one and number two. So the number two would be match the language once you've identified the language. And then uh, it, both for toward and away from an internal and external, but also number three, use the suggestion model and the bad news formula. Like you could even just write it on a sticky note and stick it on your computer because I'm sure every single day you'll find at least a few opportunities to use them. Yeah, great tips. And I can speak from personal experience, Shelly, that when you start to put some of these things into practice, it feels messy and clunky and like you're making more mistakes than you are having success. But after a while, some of these, some of these things become automatic and the bad news formula for me uh, absolutely is something that's now been, uh, been become unconscious for me and I can use it without looking at the sticky note, but I had to start there. And so just start playing with this stuff and, and, uh, and keep us posted on how things are going. So Shelly, uh, how can people find you? What else do you want people to do uh, as a result of, uh, of listening to your episode? Um, I would love it if you would buy my book. Uh, it's available on Amazon, Words That Change Minds, and connect with me on LinkedIn. And I think there's a, a um, results, uh, you have a, an email. If anybody has a question about how to apply this to a particular problem that you're having, send an email to Unleash, they'll forward it to me, and I'd be delighted to help. Just remind me where, I, where we met and uh, uh, ask your question. Is there somebody that's very away from that is hard to motivate at work? Is there uh, customers who are hard to deal with? These are the areas in which we can uh, help people. Info at unleashedresults.com. Thank you very much, Nicole. And uh, check out my book and check out Libretta. It just may make your email a lot easier because apparently 50% of email is misunderstood. Not the, can I meet you at four? No, only at two, but substantive emails. There's an awful lot of going back and forth so that this can cut some of that down away from language and make get you a better response in your email. So check out libretta.com as well. 
Shelly, thank you so much for that and, and for your dedication and commitment to your craft and for taking some time to share it with us today and our listeners. You've become such a, a, a great friend to our entire company, our whole team, and really a trusted advisor uh, uh, to us as well. So thank you for that. And for the audience uh, to stay connected. So for sure, you can send an email to info at unleashedresults.com. If you've got questions about how to apply Shelly's framework or any other questions about the show uh, at all, send those to info, info at unleashedresults.com. And stay connected to us with through all your various uh, platforms, your preferred social channels. We're on all of them. So Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, of course. And then please subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast, wherever your favorite podcast platforms are available. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what you saw, don't forget to share episode links with your friends and colleagues. And if you're ready to take the next step and you're part of a leadership team that you just know has untapped potential, don't wait another moment. Go to unleashresults.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We'll take care of the rest.